All right, everybody. Another exciting episode of Bitcoin and markets. So today I'm going to go over Zoltan Posnar and his Bretton Woods 3. But to do that, I'm going to go through a George Gammon video because he did a very good Blackboard breakdown of Zoltan's stuff. So I'm going to use that as the explanation. I'm also recording this a little different this time uh, using video and audio because uh, George is great at doing these Blackboard things. And so I wanted to offer that to my paid subscribers over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. So if you want to see me react to the actual video, uh, go to BitcoinAndMarkets.com and sign up to become a paid member. Okay, um, let's have a little background. George burst on the scene several years ago. He provides, you know, kind of alternative sound money macro commentary, um, and he has a thriving community. Uh, so, you know, he does really good work, and I appreciate what he does. I'm, I'm not, none of this is like personally against him or anything. I'm just reacting to the video. And Zoltan burst on the scene a few years ago as well. He was a somewhat, it seemed like an anonymous uh, credit Suisse credit analyst or something like that because he Zoltan seemed it, like it was not his real name and I, I still don't know if that is his real name um, but he made a few predictions that came out to be pretty accurate I mean at least directionally accurate uh, I wouldn't say he's the most prolific predictor of the future but he's definitely the most famous right now and I think that has to do with his name because Zoltan kind of looks or it looks like and it sounds like some, there's some mystery, some mystique around it, almost like a Q conspiracy sort of thing. So, um, you know, if his name was George or his name was uh, Tony, I don't think he would be as uh, popular. It's just that the name has really stuck because he hasn't been that prolific at making predictions. Um, anyway, he is predicting now this Bretton Woods 3. And just a little background on that, of course, Bretton Woods 1, 1945 where the US dollar was pegged to gold and the other currencies were pegged then to the dollar so it was, was semi-gold standard uh, then what people have been saying is Bretton Woods 2 was the petrodollar system which I might have to do a whole video just on that Jeff Schneider has recently done a video on that um, but I agree almost completely with what Jeff Schneider is saying so um, I will link to that in the show notes, actually. Let me make sure I do that. Because um, that's a good video on the petrodollar system. That's supposed to be Bretton Woods 2. And so Bretton Woods 3 is what comes next. Okay. Um, and I've noticed this being down at the conference in Miami, the Bitcoin conference last week. I noticed many people saying Bretton Woods 3. I think it was probably said a hundred times on the main stage, Bretton Woods 3, that exact term. So this is becoming a more wide, widely known term. And there's a lot of people making pontifications about it. So <laughs> this is kind of my pontification on this. And um, I, I just disagree with the whole thing. And I'm going to detail out why I do disagree with it. Um, anyway, let's get right down to business and start playing with George Gammon on step number one. I'm going to play, I'm going to try to let it run long, a long time between interruptions because I can drone on and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, this take forever. The video is 33 minutes. I think um, we're going to go over about 20 minutes of it. So um, let's, let's go. You in three simple, fast steps. Step number one, let's go over the past system, how it worked before, and then we'll discuss how it changed about 30 days ago when Russia invaded Ukraine. Oh, it all changed 30 days ago. It actually changed in 2008 with the great financial crisis. Um, at least that was the beginning of the end. And uh, 30 days ago, uh, yeah, it might have sped up a little bit of what's what's going to happen next, but uh, it didn't all change. It just sped up a little bit. Editor, let's cut to a clip of Zoltan explaining this in his own words. One pillar of Bretton Woods 3 is that the world as we know it 
where everybody is happy to export to the US, get paid in dollars and recycle those dollars onshore or offshore in the euro dollar market. I think that whole mechanism has been damaged. It's inevitable that change will come out of that. You know, it's not immediate, but it's but it's inevitable. So what does he mean when he talks about recycling euro dollars into treasuries? Let's go to the whiteboard and explore this further. It starts with a bank in the euro dollar system. So this is a bank outside of the United States. I'm happy they're, they're talking about the euro dollar system as a bank outside of the United States because it's just offshore dollar system. Um, most people don't want to even consider that it exists. And if they do, you know, it's subservient to things like the petrodollar instead of being over top of the petrodollar. But uh, it's good that they're talking about it. Outside of the purview of the Fed, they can actually create dollar denominated loans. So let's say we've got Global Corp that needs to buy some oil. Not only loans, but also the dollars that go along with it, because all dollars are credit, right? That when you make a loan, you create dollars. For some chemicals that they sell to the United States or some natural gas, something like that. Well, they need to borrow the money to do this. So they go to Euro Dollar Bank, say, Bank, we need a loan for a billion dollars, let's say. So Euro Dollar Bank says, yeah, we know you're good for it. So we'll go ahead and give you the loan. So let's start by looking at the balance sheet of Euro Dollar Bank after the loan has been created. On the asset side, they've got the new loan. On the liability side, they have the new dollars that have been created that are a asset, for the time being, of Global Corp. Okay, so Global Corp takes those dollars and they send them over to XYZ Commodity Producer Country. XYZ Commodity Producer Country sends them the stuff, the natural gas they need to turn that into the chemicals that they can sell to the United States. Well, what does XYZ Commodity Producer do with the money? In fact, let's back up just a moment here. Let's just assume that XYZ Commodity Producer has an account with the same Euro Dollar Bank. So what Euro Dollar Bank does is just transfer the billion dollars from Global Corp's account over to XYZ Commodity Producer account at the same bank. This is why I've turned the dollar sign from green over to red, just to indicate that now these billion dollars are an asset of XYZ Commodity Producer. Just wanted to point that out because that's going to be important here in just a moment. So XYZ Commodity Producer now has the billion dollars as an asset on their balance sheet. Well, what do they do with the billion dollars? Well, they'll go ahead and send that over to the United States because they want to earn some form of return, a little bit of interest on their dollars. Okay, so there's a few problems here right off the uh, the top. So Sorry, my chair pops. Uh, so if you guys want to have me get a new chair for these uh, podcasts, then you can go support me on BitcoinMarkets.com. But anyway, um, the, the problems up front here uh, are several fold. First off, uh, the commodity producer. All that they're showing here is that the commodity producer will sell to Global Corp. And Global Corp takes a loan from the bank to pay for the commodities. But there's a missing step here. And that is the commodity producer themselves takes a loan to even take those commodities out of the ground. All the debt is denominated in dollars. So the commodity producer will get a loan from Eurodollar Bank. Global Corp will get a loan from Eurodollar Bank. They'll do the business, right? Um, now, that money that the commodity producer gets from Global Corp, uh, Gammon and Zoltan are saying that, you know, they send it back to the U.S. to turn into to be recycled into treasuries. But not all of it, not even a majority, like a very small fraction will, because most of it will go to pay expenses of taking the commodities out of the ground in the first place. So that billion dollars out of that billion dollars, maybe five or 10% will be sent to buy treasuries. Maybe. They also buy other things, like they buy out their competition or they buy, uh, they make other investments. Maybe they buy some land that they want to, you know, have their next operation on that they can exploit the commodities there. So not all of their profit even goes towards uh, treasuries, just a very, very small fraction of it. So why does all of it have to use the dollar? Well, because the loan is in the dollars. The commodity producer takes a loan as well, 
so this the red you guys that are on audio only can't see this but the red dollar sign for the commodity producer is actually a loan and they have to pay it off okay um let's keep going oh and i wanted to also say that the commodity producer is not selling just to the united states and global corp isn't selling just to the united states so global corp gets those commodities makes their product and they sell to brazil they sell to uh south africa they sell to india and even china right and they, they make it as an input into further goods so this whole idea that the u.s is the only buyer like they're only selling to the united states um is false okay let's go so the united states sends them treasuries okay so now let's say that they've done another transaction here so their balance sheet they have the dollars from the other transaction and they have the treasuries that they bought with the dollars they received from global corp in the first place so let's think this through well they have treasuries on their balance sheet and they have dollars these treasuries are a liability of the u.s government and the dollars are a liability of Euro dollar bank that is under the control to a certain degree of the United States. More Notice he says, um, sorry, I'm muting myself. <laughs> uh, dollars are a liability of the Euro dollar bank and to some extent, he said, the US government. With a caveat there, it, it, no, dollars are, are a liability of the Fed or the Euro dollar bank, the bank. The treasuries are a liability of the United States. Um, so you have that. More on that in just a moment. But it doesn't end there. What happens is the dollars circulate in the United States economy. And because the United States doesn't produce the chemicals it needs, let's say for the sake of this example, those dollars come back out and go straight over to Global Corp. Okay, well, Global Corp takes those dollars. They go onto their balance sheet or back onto their balance sheet. But they take a lot of those dollars that go over to Eurodollar Bank to do what? Pay down the original loan. Okay, so see, you can start to see how this whole recycling plan scheme breaks down when you understand that not all of those dollars are sent to the United States to buy treasuries. You know, the, the, the path backwards to the United States is a minor part of the whole scheme, the Euro dollar scheme. Most of the loans and the money and the repayment and the selling and buying happen outside of the United States with dollars. The recycling to treasuries is only a very minor portion of that. And so how is the US, you know, those the dollars are supposed to be circulating in the US that have come back through the treasury recycling? And then they are used to buy the products from Global Corp. Well, no, that's, that's not how it happens because only a very small fraction of those dollars in this whole scheme come back into the United States. So once you understand that the, they're missing the loan to the commodity producer, then this whole recycling scheme starts falling apart. So if the loan is being paid off, let's just say for a moment that they pay off the entire loan with this one transaction with the, let's say they get a billion dollars from the United States for their chemical products. The billion dollars goes over to Eurodollar Bank to pay off the billion dollar loan that was created in the first place. Okay, well, let's think through what has happened to Eurodollar Bank's balance sheet. Again, they started after the loan was created with a loan as an asset with dollars as a liability. Then those dollars went over to become an asset of XYZ commodity producer. But then what happened is Global Corp took the money, the dollars they received from selling chemicals to the United States to pay off that loan. So when the dollars were transferred over to the United States, now all of a sudden, those are no longer a liability of Eurodollar Bank. And when Global Corp pays off the loan, now all of a sudden, there's no assets and no liabilities. Stated another way, they created money to begin with. Yeah, I think he messed up that uh, roundabout thing the complicated chain of events there i think he kind of miss um said that but then he fixes it right here with a very simple statement and then when the loan was paid off the dollars or the money was destroyed so at the beginning the amount of dollars in aggregate total increased and at the end when the debt was paid off 
the amount of dollars in aggregate total decreased. Okay, it's not that simple, all right, because what we're talking about here is a constantly revolving economy. So you, there is no single commodity corp or a global corp, um, you know, or even euro dollar bank. There are hundreds or thousands of banks, hundreds or thousands of commodity producers and different commodity producers because, say, an oil company needs to buy durable goods from a steel manufacturer, right? So, like, no commodity producer is an island. They all get inputs from elsewhere. And um, you can't very well build a pipeline without steel, right, or whatever they use in their pipelines. So... Um, there is no island. It's a constantly revolving economy. And as soon as one company is repaying some of their debt, other companies are taking out new debt. So it's a net difference. It's a net difference of repayment and default versus new loans being created. Now it gets also into a rate of change because um, if there's an interest rate of say 5%, you need to have 5% more money at the end of that to, unless someone's going to default. So to repay all of a debt that's based off a of 5% interest rate, you need to increase the money supply by 5% by the end. So credit needs to be expanding. But what if the rate of growth starts decreasing from 5% to 3% to 1%. You can't repay all the debt and you start having stress in the economy. It becomes more fragile because yes, businesses can go to their lender, to their bank and say, you know, can we have an extension? We need to roll this over. Um, we need to, they go to their suppliers. Can I pay you in 60 days instead of 30 days? They try to stretch it out, right? So they, if they would be forced to pay and be good on time, as growth is declining or decreasing, the rate of growth is decreasing in the economy and the rate of credit expansion is decreasing. If they were forced to pay, they would have to default. But if they can extend it out, then you start seeing how the economy becomes more fragile because everyone's extending, everyone's you know having more trouble making their debt service payments and eventually it you know as it becomes more and more fragile the littlest thing can set it off okay and you have a deflationary shock where people default and that money is destroyed instantly um, so that's the issue now also about this whole treasury recycling thing um, I think I'll get more into that as he's I'll just wait till he gets to the stuff on the right of the screen. Now let's go over and think through some of the implications of this system. So again, Zoltan was talking about recycling Euro dollars into treasuries. So the Euro dollars were created, the commodity producer gets the Euro dollars, and then they buy treasuries. This is the recycling process he's talking about. But what does this mean for the United States? Remember, only a tiny, tiny fraction do they use to buy treasuries. United States in the domestic economy. Well, it dramatically lowers interest rates. Why? Because when Janet Yellen is issuing those treasuries, she has a lot more demand. More demand, price goes up, interest rates go down. And if your mortgage rate is tied to the 10-year treasury, if XYZ commodity producer is buying or willing to buy a lot more of those treasuries, that's going to reduce your mortgage rate. That's going to reduce the rate of your car loan. That's going to reduce your credit card bill. This is how it impacts the average Joe and Jane. But this Okay, not exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, again, my chair's popping, guys. Need a new chair. Um, so when he talks about... Uh, let me get back to the screen. When he talks about lower interest rates and increased demand will... Uh, Janet Yellen, he said there, uh, will... This recycling adds demand to the dollars. Well, they could invest in other things, right? They could buy other things, but why do they buy treasuries? Think about the business that they're in, the commodity producers, 
Okay, it's, it's a variable business, right? There could be good times and bad times. Just think about a hurricane that takes out the, in the Gulf of Mexico can raise the price of oil by 25%. And there could be a shortage of certain refined products, you know, if, if a hurricane hits Houston. Uh, that's just an example. There could be uh, a, a problem with a mine. If there's a collapse or there's an explosion. You know, the, the commodity business is variable. Prices go up and down. Well, the commodity producer can't stand that, right? Because they need to make their debt service payments. So what do they do? They, well, they have to have collateral that they can use to get access to cash quickly. And that is a treasury. It is a cash equivalent. So they have this, the treasury on their balance sheet, not because of the small little gain that they get from it because it's really if you take into consideration like the cost of hiring accountants and investment people and, and all of this and you want to pay that off with five basis points in a uh, two-month or uh, six-month treasury it doesn't the math doesn't work it's still a cost for you to to own that treasury but you're doing that because you can access capital with it quickly as collateral it has a value above and beyond the interest rate payment it is insurance for your variable commodity business and as the economy gets more shaky and we hit like maybe there's uh, some credit problems brewing they want more insurance these commodity producers these banks these uh financial institutions of all sorts, they want more insurance. And how do they, what is their insurance? Well, they can do credit default swaps. And that was one of the problems with the great financial crisis, right? Was all these derivatives that they had. Um, but you want more insurance. So you buy more treasuries. That is where the demand comes from, from this fragile credit overhanged deflationary pressure in the economy requires you to carry more collateral, more insurance. It has nothing to do with some recycling petrodollar system. It has to do with, damn, I need to have, I need to hold some more cash equivalents in case I need capital in three months. So you buy more and the interest rate goes down. That's, that's what we're talking about here. That's going to reduce your mortgage rate. It's going to reduce the rate of your car loan. That's going to reduce your credit card bill. This is how it impacts the average Joe and Jane. Well, it also impacts the average Joe and Jane in other economies, right? I mean, one of my pet peeves is just constantly picking on the U.S. I know the U.S. isn't perfect. Nobody's perfect. There are, there are evil people out in this world, right? But damn, the best things of the last 200 years where life has turned from crap. Like if you go back more than 200 years ago, life was crap. Almost everywhere on the planet, except a very, very elite few, you know, in every country, the richest of the rich. Then life wasn't crap, but it was still pretty bad. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have um, a lot of modern conveniences, right? But for most, 99% of the population, life was utter crap 200 years ago. But in the last 200 years, with the rise of uh, the Industrial Revolution, the end of slavery, that thank you to the British Empire for that, um, for both of those things. And the, uh, then the, the U.S. with the expansion of credit to ungodly amounts. That's what's brought the world into the modern conveniences that we know, the modern standard of living. So yes, the, the U.S. people residents their assets prices go up okay um but everyone else is brought out of poverty you know the last 50 years more people were brought out of poverty than any time especially the last 200 years so that's yeah that's one of my pet peeves is everyone disses on the u.s as if this is some great benefit that we are getting 
disproportionate to the rest of the world, but that is not the case. Okay. The modern standard of living is due to the United States at this moment in time. And so that is, uh, you know, I would say if I were somebody, uh, middle class in Guatemala, I would be thanking the United States, but we're not told that, you know, we're told to demonize the United States. They're holding us down, but that's not the case. I mean, in some instances it is, but as a general rule, the world is much better off now than 200 years ago. It's much better off now than even 50 years ago. And that's thanks to the United States. All right, um, let's continue. But the story doesn't end there. If interest rates go down, then all else being equal, the aggregate demand, the purchasing power in aggregate total in the United States is gonna go up. As an example, let's say that you own a home, okay? Well, if interest rates are lower, then that means there's more purchasing power, more demand for your house, the price is gonna go up. That means that your net worth is going to increase. Why? Because of this system that Zoltan was talking about, where Euro dollars are created, and then they're recycled into US treasuries thanks to these commodity producing countries buying treasuries and keeping them on their balance sheet as a reserve asset. But now let's go ahead and think through the next step. If you were a country. Okay, it's not thanks to that. It's not thanks to this dollar recycling scheme. It is due to um, the US and the West dominance. That's what it's due to. Because, you know, for the history of mankind, neighbors could not trust neighbors, at least neighbor countries, right? The Vietnamese never trusted the Chinese. Um, the Indians never trusted the, uh, say, the Persians. Or, you know, the neighbors could not trust each other. War was the constant. War was the typical state of affairs, at least some animosity towards your neighbors, not trusting your neighbors. Think of Britain and France. They didn't trust each other for the last five, a thousand years or even longer, right? Um, so that is the constant state of the world is not trusting your neighbors and not trading with them. And so the U.S. comes in and says, no, 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 no. We're going to have this free trade here. We're going to have the WTO. We're going to have the IMF, even though I get all the criticism get the IMF against the IMF, and I agree with a lot of them. But, uh, you know, the U.S. set this whole thing up and maintained it. Yes, there was these expeditionary nature to the United States. But now the United States is at the end of our rope. We're at the end of this credit cycle, long credit cycle, and the U.S. is going to come home. There's fewer U.S. troops stationed abroad than ever, like in the last hundred years. So the, the U.S. is coming home. The U.S. free trade stuff is going away. Sanctions and tariffs and all that are beginning to become the normal around the world. And that's, that's all, uh, that's what's going to happen. So the reason why the rates were low, the reason why the U.S. Had, has such a high standard of living is because we enabled that. That has a lot of dollars, like the United States, just being able to print their own dollars, or Japan, who has a lot of dollars from running a trade surplus, because they're selling all of their stuff to the global countries, and they're receiving dollars in return. So then they can take those dollars and buy the energy or the commodities they need because the commodities are denominated in dollars. The commodities settle in dollars. Therefore, if you've got the dollars, then you can get the commodities or the energy you need. So the way the system worked in the past, as Luke Groman has said, and Zoltan used this phrase as well, it's our currency, meaning it's the United States currency, but it's your problem, meaning that it's our currency, but you need to have it. And you need to have it to buy X, Y, and Z. And we're going to control. They want to have it. They want to have it. Who doesn't want to borrow in dollars? They can borrow in any other currency they want to, but they don't. People want the dollar. It is what made third world into developing economies, emerging markets. That has brought more people out of poverty in the last 50 years than ever in human history. 
So it's not our currency, your problem. It's more like the currency, our benefit. We're all benefiting until it becomes our problem, all everyone's problem. So the currency, everyone's benefit until it becomes everyone's problem. Control to a certain degree, the value of those dollars or the value of that currency relative to the stuff that you need to buy in the future. Because if the United States is running massive fiscal deficits and they're running huge trade deficits and they're, let's just say, quote unquote, printing money and creating consumer price inflation or devaluing the dollar relative to oil, then all quote, of those commodity producing countries that are holding dollars under their balance sheet as a reserve asset, they're all losing purchasing power. Okay, this is just not the case. I wanted to bring up a chart of oil here. And let's see, make sure you guys can see that. So if you look at the price of oil today, by the way, this is a massive wick. The This um, monthly candle in March just has the biggest wick in the history of the oil market to the upside. And it's it's insane. But if you look at the current prices, right around $100, right? It was, that was normal for the last 20, 15, 20 years. That was a little bit elevated, but it was relatively normal. It was on the high side of normal. Um, and f starting in like 2014, it dove down into this general area where it was much lower. So the dollar was actually appreciating against oil. And if you put uh, a channel kind of in here, showing the last 15 years the channel actually slopes downward even with the most recent surge in oil prices so overall the the u.s dollar is not being devalued against oil it just isn't i mean very recently we've had a a huge a huge supply shock in oil so yes the price recently seems like it's being devalued against, or the dollar is being devalued against oil. But in the long grand scheme of things, it's not. Okay. Boom, boom, boom. So again, another example of our currency, but your problem. And this is something the entire globe now understands and is moving away from. And it's a big component of Bretton Woods 3. Another knock-on effect to the system we had in the past, where the euro dollars were recycled into treasuries, is it created future demand for dollars. Why? Because let's go back to the example of euro dollar bank creating the loan in the first place. That loan is denominated in dollars. Therefore, if Global Corp wants to pay back that loan, what do they need? Dollars. So if a loan is created in this euro dollar bank system, or even if a loan is created in the United States, it creates future demand for dollars. So if there's more lending that's occurring or more credit it's being extended outside of the United States that is creating artificial demand for dollars. So when those dollars leave the United States for that trade deficit, they have an... I was muted there. Um, it's not artificial. It's actual demand. That is the real point of this whole thing. Increased amount of demand. If the dollar wasn't the reserve currency... And if there wasn't all this debt that was being created by the euro dollar system, partly as a result of the commodities being priced in dollars, then when the United States exported all of those green pieces of paper, the value of the dollar would plummet. So this is why the United States to a large... Okay, so that's a cart before the horse. I'm sure there's a name of a fallacy. <laughs> I don't know. But um, it's not that the commodities are priced in dollars, which makes people borrowing dollars it's actually the other way around people borrowing dollars which makes the commodities be priced in dollars and the reason why that people borrow in dollars is because of the network effect the network effect of dollars and the relative rules-based order around dollars you know like the ccp doesn't even obey the rule of law the ccp can change the law at any time they can bend it for anyone you nobody could sue nobody can sue over there in china if you have a problem against some some other company that has the green light from the government you can't sue them 
you can in the United States. And it's not perfect, obviously. Um, but it's much better than China. So that's why people don't want to borrow in the yuan. Because there could be some political problem. And boom, your, your yuan, don't, they're not yours anymore. Similar in Russia, I think Russia is better suited than China to become a major currency. But, you know, this isn't, um, it's a cart before the horse. It's not that the, the commodities are priced in dollars that makes people get loans in dollars. It's the loans in dollars make people price everything in dollars. So uh, money is convergent. People will join a monetary network. And that's why we see the value of the U.S. versus or the value of the dollar versus other currencies right now is going up. Because people, the demand for the dollar is higher than the demand for the other currencies because of this network effect. First degree is able to export its inflation. Peter Schiff says this all the time, and it makes a lot of sense. When the United States creates an excessive amount of dollars domestically, those dollars can leave the United States and it really doesn't matter. It doesn't really impact the value of the dollar relative to the imports that we need from other countries because those dollars are either going to pay off debt, which decreases the amount of dollars, like we explained earlier, or it's sitting on the balance sheet of a commodity producer, which doesn't circulate with a lot of velocity chasing other goods and services. So how will it impact you, the viewer watching this video right now, when we transition into this Bretton well, let me just touch on the exporting of inflation. Um, money printing doesn't happen when the government produces, uh, uh, the government deficit spends. That They borrow existing dollars for that. You know, they pull demand forward. That's why prices increase. But it's not money printing. It's actually demand, it's demand destruction. So future demand is destroyed because you're pulling it forward to now. And um, so there, there is no inflation to export. The, the, the inflation is happening everywhere in the euro dollar system at the same time. Right? The deflationary pressures will be different in different places. But the total like inflation is relatively, I would say, constant. Um, well, I take that back. I mean, there, yeah, there's places in the world where there's more dollars printed in the euro dollar system. And there's also places where there's more deflationary pressures because of the certain characteristics of the economy in that area. So um, there, there's no exporting of inflation. U.S. deficit is not printing money. It is borrowing existing dollars and pulling demand forward. And how do we know that? Well, just look at the balance sheet of, or just look at the total US debt and inflation has not, or prices have not kept up with that, right? So anyway. Woods three system, according to Zoltan, meaning what happens when the Euro dollar system is no longer recycling those Euro dollars into treasuries, what happens when it's no longer our currency, your problem from what we were doing in the past. All right, we're going to go to step number two now. To this new system, Zoltan Pozar refers to as Bretton Woods 3. So in the last step, we kind of went over the problem of these commodity producers and the commodity consumers that produce a lot of stuff. So let's just think through this from a standpoint of the individual countries. Commodity producer would be someone like Russia, commodity consumer, and a stuff producer would be someone like Japan or China. We'll stick with China because we're going to use them in the example. Okay, this is a problem. Um, and again, it's one of my big pet peeves is commodity producer. Who is the largest commodity producer in the world of almost every commodity? The United States. Russia isn't. We produce twice as much natural gas and a lot more oil than Russia does. We export less because we consume it. You know, that the consumption is the part that they're missing. It's very important to consume the things that you're making. You know, it's very important to have a buyer when you make something, right? I, I, 
but they're they're forgetting all about Zoltan is forgetting all about the consumer. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> so yes, the U.S. is the largest commodity producer in the world, and we're also the largest, probably one of the largest stuff producers in the world. We just don't export it because we have the consumers. You know, China is trying to transition into a consumption-led economy, but they can't. They're stuck in the middle income trap, and so they are low income, and they have low value-add things that they do there. They don't have high value-add. If they had high value-add, they would be a consumption-led economy. The U.S. is a high value-add. We also produce a lot of things. We have the consumers. So we not only produce commodities, we produce stuff as well. And, but we consume it. We're a complete circular economy in the United States. Almost complete. If you look at um, the like import-export, right? Like they, they want us to believe, Zoltan and others, want us to believe that the U.S. is completely dependent on imports that we, our trade deficit is so bad and all this stuff. But, you know, we only trade, international trade, only accounts for about 20% of U.S. GDP, between 15 and 20, I think. It might be 20 now because our deficit has really exploded. But um, the it only still accounts for about 20%. And half of that or more is North America, so Canada and Mexico. So out of, you know, out of the rest of that, we're talking um, between 5 and 10% is international trade outside of North America. Uh, that's uh, 5%, 5 to 10% of our GDP. So, and, and out of that, not all of it comes from China. <laughs> A lot of it comes from South America or uh, Singapore or Taiwan. Um, I guess, you know, whatever that, that whole debate is. Japan, Europe, I mean, we get a lot of imports from other places, not just China. So I, I would say China, I could look up the numbers again. I've done it in the past, maybe last year. And it was like 2%, 2 or 3% of our, less than that. I think it was 1% to 2% of our GDP was based on trade with China. It is not like a huge thing. Um, the reason why China looks so much like an exporter, and they are a huge exporter, is because they don't have the consumers. They don't have a circular, circular economy in China. That's a problem when you're talking about deglobalization. Same with Russia. They produce a lot of commodities relative to their consumption of those commodities, but the U.S. produces more, and we consume way more. It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous to say that the U.S. doesn't fit into any of those categories. That's because the U.S. is both. The U.S. has it amongst themselves. And so guess what? Everybody wants to trade with us. And I am a... I sound like I'm a dollar and U.S. pumper here. <laughs> I am kind of because of the facts of the matter. Not because I'm rah-rah about the U.S., but because, yeah, the U.S. makes a lot of shit. Like, think about this. We're the number one exporter, or we're number one producer of oil, number one producer of natural gas, number one producer of wheat, number one producer of soybeans, number three producer of um, beef, number one producer, I believe, of pork. Um, all... Pretty much everything. We can have our we have uranium here. We have um, most of the metals. We have m all the wood, lumber, right? And, and if you add Canada with the United States, we're like way far up in in the amount of lumber that's produced. It's just ridiculous to say that the U.S. is not a commodity producer and a stuff maker, a stuff producer. We are both. But we are also the consumers. And you cannot make a product without a customer. 
That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. I mean, that's something that uh, people believe when they're like eight years old. Zoltan. That's what somebody believes when they're eight years old, is that you can make something without a customer. All right. Hello. But the problem they have is their assets are someone else's liability, namely the United States and the West. So the West can freeze their assets, like the money that we talked about, the dollars that are on the balance sheets of the euro dollar banks, or the United States, to a certain degree, can devalue those assets on their balance sheet relative to the stuff that they need to buy. So if we were to summarize their two liabilities with the assets of the balance sheet, or I guess their two biggest risks, let's put it that way, would be that the United States or the West can freeze their assets, or the United States and the West can create this devaluation of the dollar or devaluation of some of the assets they have relative to what they need to buy in the future, which would be oil. So what's the solution they're transitioning into right now as well, those problems didn't just arise, you know, they've been around forever, yet they choose to use the dollar. As we speak, according to Zoltan, it would be to de-dollarize. So let's think through this system if we weren't using dollars. Now, the bank in the middle would be China Bank. We'd have Global Corp. On the right, we'd have China. Remember, they're the country that is producing all of the stuff, but they are a commodity consumer. And then we have Russia, which is a commodity producer. So Global Corp this time would get a loan, not denominated in dollars, but denominated in yuan, because Russia would charge yuan. What would that be? What would that interest rate be? On for the commodities that Global Corp needed to turn into the chemicals or the stuff that they were giving to China, that China uses as an input cost to create the end version of the stuff, <laughs> the retail stuff, if you will, that they could go ahead and sell back to Russia. Oh my goodness, they can make it to, he at least talked about retail, a customer. There, there's a customer somewhere here, right? Um, Russia is not going to buy all of China's stuff that they produce. Are they? Okay. So when China buys the input stuff from Global Corp, they pay in yuan. Global Corp can take those yuan to pay down their yuan denominated debt. But this isn't where it ends. We got to take it a few steps further here. Now, I mean, that's a very small network. That's a very niche network there. Um, if, if you're relying on that to replace the global dollar system, it's like, here's the global dollar system. You know, you've seen those infographics with um, like the visual capitalist when there's like this huge pile of a trillion dollars and then it shows like some other thing that's tiny, tiny. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about this tiny, tiny network right here that he's describing as Bretton Woods 3 is going to take over for this gigantic euro dollar system. On the asset side of the balance sheet, Zoltan believes that they'll hold each other's currencies, but mostly could hold gold. And let's think through the problems they have. Freezing their assets and inflation relative to stuff that they need to buy in the future. So if they hold gold, on the asset side of their balance sheet. Well, that solves the freezing problem because that's no one else's liability. And to a certain degree, it solved the problem of the purchasing power of your assets, being able to buy the same amount of stuff that you need in the future, the same amount of commodities. Okay. Oh. Commodities, let's say. But I think- Just wanted to get that last, but he said same amount of commodities. Um, so gold, supposedly, a gold back yuan in this system is supposed to be keep your money from being frozen which is not the case okay they're not going to start dealing in gold coins they're going to deal in a gold-backed yuan where that gold is in a vault of the central bank or a vault of some bank in hong kong or shanghai or something right and so it can still be frozen because your bank account is still on some centralized database. So it can still be frozen. It doesn't fix the, the problem of freezing. If, if I'm, if I'm uh, trading with Russia and Yuan is going over to Russia, right? Or Yuan is coming back from Russia, whatever the case is. The, they're not shipping the gold back and forth. That gold is somewhere and you just have a claim. 
It can still be frozen. And then you're dealing with the CCP, a, a government that doesn't have a rule of law or any recourse or any arbitration or anything like that. It can still be frozen. It'll be frozen much more than using dollars because the euro dollar system is outside of the jurisdiction of the United States for the most part, right? Like even the assets of Russia here were frozen in U.S. banks and they, they were still allowing Russia to pay debt with that. They still allowed them to use it. <laughs> it wasn't really even frozen. And the Fed didn't want them to do it in the first place. So there's contradiction here between if it would continue. You know, there, there's at least some checks and balances. There's no checks and balances with the CCP. The only check and balance with the CCP is corruption and overthrowing the government. I mean, and, and you want to have their liability? It's just, it's beyond crazy. I think there's an interesting solution for that that Zoltan didn't talk about. If you went ahead and pegged oil, gold, then what would happen, as an example, is you would say, okay, we are selling X amount of barrels of oil for X amount of ounces of gold. And we're going to stick to that. And then China said, okay, well, this yuan that we're using for all these settlement payments, just to make things easy, or the transactions, we'll go ahead and peg that to a certain amount of gold. So then this solves both problems. So if Russia is holding yuan on their balance sheet, they know that's pegged to gold. And therefore, the stuff that they need to buy from China in the future is going to be at the same price. And no. No. And the reason why Zoltan didn't say this was because... It's, it's silly. If you peg gold to oil, I mean, gold is much more stable. The purchasing power of gold is much more stable than the price of oil. The reason the price of oil goes up and down is because, like I said earlier about commodity producers, they're in a very a highly variable business. So the price of oil is going to go up and down dramatically. Just look at the last four years. It went from 90 to zero to 120. The price of oil is extremely variable. And if you peg it to gold, you're going to have Gresham's Law problems. You're going to have hoarding problems. You're going to have just massive issues with that. It, you're going to have to expend so much energy and so much time and money to keep that peg legit that it's not worth it. You know, it, it would bankrupt you very quickly. So the reason why Zoltan didn't mention it, I think, is because at least Zoltan knows that it's silly. China can hold gold on their balance sheet and know that the commodities that they need to buy in Russia in the future is also going to be at the same price. So Zoltan didn't talk about this, but that's something that my good friend Luke Groman has discussed. And I think it's an interesting thought experiment, to say the least, especially when you look at it through the lens of what Zoltan is saying with his transition into Bretton Woods 3. So just to review to make sure we're all on the same page, we've got Global Corp taking out a loan from China Bank denominated in Yuan, and they get the commodities. Okay, uh, we're going to fast forward here. This next second, he just goes over the confusing thing that doesn't even work. Okay, let's see. He's going to talk about transition in the west now uh so zoltan that's talking about the transit he talked about the transition in the east and transition around the world now what is the transition in the west the u.s and europe transition that he sees happening in the west right now what ended up happening you know i guess unintended consequences of all this is that the private sector is sanctioning itself because it just doesn't want to touch any commodities coming out of russia it doesn't want to finance anyone, you know, moving uh, uh, commodities come out of Russia. You know, if you're a ship owner, you don't want to lease your ships to anyone who wants to move stuff out of Russia. So basically, it's this self-sanctioning aspect of the private sector. So basically, what he is describing over in the West is you've got Virtue Corporation, and they are sanctioning themselves from Russia because the politicians, like your drunk, insolvent Uncle Sam, can say, well, we're sanctioning Russia except for oil. But if Virtue Corporation says, no, 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 we're not going to buy oil from Russia, even if we can, effectively, it's like putting on the sanction. And then you've got Moody, the millennial, right here in the middle, and they don't care if their standard of living goes down. 
so long as it makes them feel good, or so long as whatever policy your drunk, insolvent Uncle Sam is implementing against Russia or the East makes them sleep well at night. So Virtue Corporation, Moody, and your drunk, insolvent Uncle Sam, which would represent the politicians in Europe, pretty much all the politicians in the West, they have a plan or a, let's call it a solution as well. Of course, their solution isn't to de-dollarize. They want to continue using. Okay. Um, so it's not virtue signaling. Uh, everybody, like, you know, everyone has a price, right? They could do it. They could export out, more out of Russia. Um, but they aren't going to because the risk is too high. You know, I, I've heard that they won't insure boats going into a war zone, quote unquote war zone. And you send a boat to Odessa, you send a boat to this Azov place, um, into the Azov or even into Crimea. It's, it's a risk that's too high to take. And so they're not able to get insurance and they can't export out of there. So it's not that they're virtue signaling. It's that they, it's too big of a risk. It's too big of a risk. But everyone would have their price. I mean, if you paid them quadruple, they might risk it. So th this is not virtue signaling. This is just straight up economics. And the reason why the, the West, these moody millennials, want to sleep at night, is, or they can't sleep at night, would be because there's too much risk. They feel in danger. And he's about to get into the military aspect where they want to create a European military or whatever. Well, that's because these people feel threatened, which is the constant state of the world, like I was saying up at the beginning. So it's, it's not a matter of not wanting to do a virtue signaling. It's, it's just a matter of risk. And next also, um, this drive towards ESG or whatever, I, I think that's, that's going away. Um, because it's just not viable. And especially as prices go up, um, you know, pr the cost of energy goes up then it's just, it's not viable anymore. And, um, what was I going to say about that? Um, the, oh gosh, we're going on an hour here and I'm starting to lose my train of thought. So the, um, what what's probably going to happen is these Western countries like France or Germany or whatever, they're going to open up more energy production. They already talked about opening up one of these gas fields that I think is under the Netherlands. Again, uh, they started ramping it down and closing it down over the last decade, but they're, they want to ramp it back up. There's lots of, ex, there's lots of uh, resources to exploit in the Baltic and in the North Sea, you know, with Norway and stuff. Uh, also in the Mediterranean, in the East Mediterranean, there's this huge oil field uh, that they found. And Israel has some, Turkey wants to have some, that's why they, I think, took over some of uh, Cyprus. And um, Lebanon and Egypt, th these, these all have claims. But the Western powers might just go take it, right? Like what they've done in the past. And how does that fit into Bretton Woods 3, where the Western powers build a military? They don't use it against each other. They go out and take the resources that they want. They can't take Russians' resources, Russia's resources, but they can take everybody else's. And how does that affect credit ratings? How does that affect what currency you want to hold? The U.S. doesn't have to do that. Because we can exploit our own resources here. So, who, again, which currency, which credit is going to be better? You know? Um, they don't talk at all in this Bretton Woods thing. It's completely oblivious to the risk of war expanding. And the risk of the, the Europeans actually going out and taking the stuff that they want. They can't do it with Russia. And Ukraine, they will not do that. But they can do it with Syria. They can do it with Egypt. And Libya, they did it with Libya already, right? They can do it. And they will. 
using the dollar or the euro, but they want to move towards more protectionism. And they realize that they're way too dependent, not only on the East, but maybe even too dependent on each other. And Zoltan points out that many of the politicians in Europe have talked about building up their own military so they don't have to rely on the United States. So what you'll see moving forward with the West is they will continue these policies that they pursued prior to Russia invading Ukraine. And that would be this push towards electrification with a Green New Deal. But on the other hand, they also want to be ESG friendly. So they don't want to invest in things that they need or commodities to make this Green New Deal a reality. Yeah, that's going away. I mean, you can't you can't describe like some impossibility and then say they're going to do that impossibility or they're going to continue pushing for this impossible thing. Um, the goal was not like, well, the goal was to to force everybody into that together, right? To try to move toward that together. But if you can't move together. You can't force everyone to agree with you and follow the global, globalist Davos progressive types. They're not going to. And is like Le Pen, if Le Pen wins, oh my God, this whole thing is over. Europe is over. Um, and they're going to go forward. They're going to scrap this ESG BS. They're going to scrap all this stuff. Um, you can't say that they're going to the pursue an impossibility. It just, it doesn't make sense. So what will they do? Well, they still need to source their commodities, but they're definitely not going to do it from those bad guys in Russia. So they might just hold their nose and buy them from China. Zoltan points out what would most likely happen in this scenario, and that's the Chinese bank would just buy the commodities from Russia. They'd store them, and then they would just sell them at a huge markup to Virtue Corp or your drunk, insolvent Uncle Sam in the West. And it makes Moody feel good because they believe that they're pushing back against Russia. When in reality, those commodities are still being sourced in Russia. The only difference is China is making a huge profit by buying them from Russia and then acting as a middleman, selling them over to the West. And we see this playing out right in front of our own eyes with energy costs skyrocketing, the price of food doing the exact same thing. And it's getting so bad in Europe, the politicians are actually asking them to use a lot less energy by driving less, showering less, doing fewer loads of laundry, and turning off the heat in their house, just wearing a few extra sweaters. So right now, Bretton Woods 3 in the West is all about lowering the standard of living to increase the level of good feeling. I mean, not really. Step number three. <laughs> so what does the world look uh -oh. like in the future if we move to this new global monetary system? Um, so what do you say there about... We can already see it happening. Well, we don't see them buying it from China. We don't see this new roundabout way of doing it starting. We actually see, um, like, thinking about exploiting some of these things. Also, the, the U.S. can produce more. Other places can produce more. Like, Nigeria can produce more oil. Um, they can get it from, like I said, the Mediterranean, from Libya, uh, from the North Sea. And that's what we're going to see. We're not going to see them um, importing it from China. Why would they do that? And if they did, like that just goes to show how little demand there is in China. And China is never going to break out of becoming a of the middle income trap. So, no, I, I, I don't see that this is a problem. Economics is a self-regulating system. It's a self-balancing system. And yeah, there will be an initial shock. And that's what we're dealing with right now with the price increases that we see. That's the initial uh, supply shock to the system. It's not an inflation. It's not money printing. It's supply shock. And as prices go up, the cure for high prices is high prices, right? They'll, more production will be brought online around the world under the control of the West. That is just what's going to happen. So, and, and if the East, if China and Russia want to get squirrely, I mean, the U.S. can just close down the trade routes for China and boom. Like I said, it's 2% of U.S. GDP. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things.
So on, only for certain products, right? But anyways, um, I think that's all for this one, guys. Uh, if you want to hear more of things like this, let me know. And I will do more like this. Uh, supporters over on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. You should be able to see the video of this one. Uh, and if you like that, uh, then let me know. Because I want to start trying to get more supporters on my paid service. But anyway, guys, thanks for joining me. And we will see you next time.